You are listening to the Cycling Podcast at the 2022 Vuelta España, powered by Super Sapiens, energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Today we are in Utrecht. Hello and buenas tardes from La Vuelta a España. My name is Daniel Friba. I'm the host of tonight's episode and... As you heard from our friend Rob Hatch there, well, am I in Utrecht? Are we in Utrecht? Well, actually, as revealed a couple of weeks ago in the podcast, we're not, or I'm not there yet. Um, one too many foreign overseas grand departs, grand salidas, um, grande partenzas for us this year. Thinking of carbon emissions, we're going to stay at home or stay in a remote location for the first three stages. I'll be in Spain from Monday, um, joining the race in the Basque Country on Tuesday. Lionel is not with me today, and indeed he's tr- staying true to the moniker he coined for La Vuelta a España a few years ago, namely this is the holiday Grand Tour. He is taking a bit of a break, although he'll be helping me out behind the scenes. Meanwhile, every day I'll be joined by one or more of the all-star roster of guests that we've assembled for the next three weeks, including former... Welter stage winner Dan Martin, Dan Martin, as we'll be calling him for the next three weeks. Um, current but unfortunately injured AG2R uh, Citroën rider Larry Warbass, former Leopard Trek team manager Brian Nygaard, Eurosport commentator Rob Hatch, him again, plus our first guest tonight. Joining me from Peacham, Vermont, in the United States, former Team Sky and Katusha Alperson professional finisher of three Vueltas a España, including one in 2016 which is then teammate Chris Froome was the runner-up, Ian the Boz Boswell. Ian, how are you? Yeah, I'm doing well. It's uh, Friday afternoon here in the U.S., so wrapping up the week. And, uh, yeah, it feels strange to be tuning into the Vuelta. Um, you know, obviously I was over at the tour for a week with, with the Cycling Podcast, and I love that. And it's nice to, uh, nice to be back here and, I guess, uh, yeah, follow the race remotely this time. Honeyed, honeyed memories today watching that opening team time trial of your famous victory in 2016? Um, I mean, I love a team time trial. I despised individual time trials. And I think starting a, a grand tour off with a team time trial is great. Um, you know, it, it's, you know, I guess just seeing the seeing the teams, you know, out there and, and just knowing the stress of the day is, you know, it's always a little bit nerve wracking starting a grand tour. Yeah, and the whole day waiting until 8 o'clock in the evening to start. Yeah, I guess that's a nice thing about watching the race from the U.S. is it's, you know, just on 3 p.m. here in the afternoon. So I've still got a whole evening to enjoy versus uh, folks up in up in the Netherlands or, or both of you over in Europe um, watching and, and probably getting ready for bed here soon. You've just revealed, Ian, that we do have a second guest um, tonight. Second in the harness, making his cycling podcast debut, joining us from... Alfas del Pi, I think, is the correct, more or less the correct pronunciation. On the Costa Blanca, a man who did his first Vuelta in the 1980s, I believe. He's an author, presenter, contributor to countless Spanish newspapers, magazines and websites, including Meta 2000, Las Provincias, uh, Ciclo 21, and he's also the namesake of one of the greatest classics writers of all time. Nicolas Van Looy. He is Spanish, not Belgian. Nicolas, we've got to start with that name. How did a Spaniard come to be called Van Looy? 
Hi, good evening. Well, my, my dad obviously was not Spanish. He was uh, he was from Belgium and uh, he died 20 years ago, 22 years ago in 2000. And he was uh, he was a journalist here in, in, in Spain in the in the early 80s and the 90s. And because of his age, he was born in 42 when he when he began his uh, his activity here in Spain as a journalist. Many, many, many fans thought that he was Rick Van Looy. Uh, writing with a with some kind of other name invented name and uh, just to avoid everyone uh, speaking about his uh, wins and stuff like that but that wasn't <laughs> obviously true my dad was jeff and he was born like jeff and he died as jeff so uh, nothing nothing to do with rick van Looy. he's not family it's a very very common uh, surname in, Bel- in belgium so uh, just coincidence i think and you as a consequence of your dad's origins, you spent some of your childhood in Belgium, didn't you? In Antwerp, I think. Yeah, I, I lived there until uh, 1986. And then I, we, we all moved here because my mother is Spanish. So uh, we, we moved to, to sunny Spain and uh, to, to the Costa Blanca, which is uh, 12 months uh, summertime. So uh, could it be happier? And Belgium is not 12 months summertime, certainly not. No, um, not at all. No. <laughs> uh, Nicolas, I mentioned that you were a previous contributor to Meta 2000. That was a great institution of Spanish cycling journalism, wasn't it? And your dad was heavily involved with Meta 2000. Yeah, he was one of the founders there. So um, I can't remember now. I think it was mid-80s. I can't remember the, the, the exact year when it started. I think it was 87, something like that. It had a predecessor. It was El Ciclista, which existed uh, since the very, very early 80s, since 81, I think. And then it became Meta 2000. Uh, and uh, since then, since I was a child, I was uh, going with him to the uh, to the Vuelta and uh, any many many other races. I was some kind of delivery boy in those uh, <laughs> early press rooms uh, back in the eighties. And I loved the sphere there. I loved the sport. I loved the the ambience of those uh, of those press rooms in the in the eighties. So different as uh, as now. Yeah. Not the kind of delivery boy that you sometimes got at bike races in the 1990s, but that's another that's another topic that hopefully we won't have to touch on. Um, Boz, I mentioned your start to the 2016 Vuelta a España. 2015, you also started with a team time trial. Um, now you're going to start this Vuelta with a time trial as well. Um, usually we sum up what's happened on day stage with uh, the tale of the etapa, at the Vuelta, we thought there'd be a bit of a twist this year since Lionel's not here. He's synonymous with the tale of the etapa. We're going to do something different. And, well, take it away again, Rob Hatch. El resumen del día a contrarreloj. The stage summary time trial. So, Ian... You are poised on the start ramp. This is what, as we heard there, we're going to be calling El Resumen a Contrarreloj. It's the stage summary times trial. You can have 90 seconds to sum up what happened today. This is the easiest one of these by far of La Vuelta. Um, So I'm expecting an absolutely perfect job. So I'm going to give you a countdown. Well, we're going to hear a countdown. And Ian, you have... 90 seconds. 
All right, the first stage of this year's Vuelta a España was a 23.3 kilometer time trial from Utrecht and finishing in Utrecht. Uh, big Dutch crowds on the side of the roads. The roads were damp for some of the early teams and Burgos BH was the first team off the start ramp. Quickly after them, uh, Arkea Samsic left the start ramp with only seven riders, the only team to not start this year's Vuelta with a complete roster. Um, following them, Francais de Jus set the early fastest time, I guess the first time that I considered a, a serious time for contend contending the day, but that was quickly overtaken by Team Bike Exchange with team leader Simon Yates in a time of 25 minutes and 11 seconds. From there, the course began to dry out. Rain did not come, and I assumed that cars driving over the course and riders kind of helped to, to dry the roads. Following them was uh, two seconds behind Bike Exchange was Team UAE, and then came the big teams of the day, the, the big budget teams, the teams that everyone was expecting and waiting for. First of those was Ineos, who set a new fastest time, beating Bike Exchange. And then the home team, the team everyone was waiting for, the Yumbo Visma squad, who were fresh off victory at the Tour de France. They won the stage in a time of 24 minutes and 40 seconds, and veteran rider Robert Gessink took the red jersey, and he'll be riding the next two stages in red on home roads in the Netherlands. And Primus Roglic is well poised to take his fourth consecutive Vuelta a España, not just ever, but in a row. Oh, you, you've been practicing this. You've been practicing this, haven't you? Right on, <laughs> I know the, I have money, right on the button. Incredible. Oh, boy. What do you think of that, yes. From uh, this? Perfect. Perfect. I couldn't do it better in 90 seconds. There's so much to speak about in in, in this in this kind of uh, opening stages, isn't it? So uh, in 90 seconds, just one thing, because it's it was a last-minute uh, call for uh, Manuel Peñalver in Burgos BH. He's, he he didn't start as well because uh, because of COVID. So there were two teams with seven riders, which were Arquias, he said, and uh, and also Burgos Beach. Well, I didn't I didn't notice that, but I, the only reason I noticed that Arkea didn't uh, start with eight because they had this very uh, fluorescent new jersey that they were wearing today. And so I was, <laughs> maybe because it was Nido. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yes, yeah. that also. <laughs> Did you chaps know? Do you chaps know much or anything about the? So, um, as you said, or as you guys said, there two of the Burgos riders tested positive. One was replaced, one wasn't. And the guy who was drafted in as one of the replacements, Victor, I, I never know how to pronounce names from Monaco, um, whether it should be a French pronunciation or Italian um, pronunciation, but it, Victor uh, Langelotti would be in Italian, um, and he's the first bona fide pro from monaco in history um there were, there were a couple of guys in the 20s that rode a few races but this kid is the son of the president of the monegasque cycling federation don't know how he got on today he's a bit of a he's a climber so i imagine he would have suffered significantly today did you guys have you guys ever heard of him no i have not um i guess i lived eight years in, in nice and i saw the the monaco cycling team out and about fairly often um but i i think they recruited a, a lot of riders from from all over the place whether it be you know france italy spain um but i think with a goal of you know kind of developing some some monegasque riders but um no i, I interesting fact that i did not know of and i i guess i heard recently that uh Vinokurov's son is signing for astana next year so i assume he's is got that the one is also called is that the one that's also called Alexander Vinokurov? There yes, are two on yes. There's one called Nicholas and one called Alexander. Okay. Um, 
we well we heard then exactly what had happened in the stage um pitch perfect debut from ian boswell and we'll talk of course more about the team time trial later in the episode a couple of news headlines today as well that were sort of touched on there were one or two um Naido quintana of course as most people probably know now tested positive for tramadol at the tour de france it's not an anti-doping infringement so in theory he didn't have to skip the vuelta Espana, but his team and quintana decided that he would indeed do that so it was pretty big news i mean rk were mainly going to the vuelta for quintana um he is no longer riding we heard about the burgos the positive covid test they started one rider down um movistar well arkea were in a special a new fluorescent yellow jersey movistar in a white jersey at the vuelta which is some kind of nod to alejandro valverde who of course is riding his last vuelta España, last grand tour here We'll talk more about Valverde later. Astana also wearing a special white jersey, presumably a nod to Superman Lopez raising the white flag a day before the end last year. I don't know if that's true. I don't. Well, of course it's not true. Any, any? <laughs> did you guys know why Astana were in white today? I don't know, and I, I mean, there's quite a few jersey changes, um, and I was thinking maybe because it's uh, Nibali's last Grand Tour. And maybe they, yeah, maybe that will both, be it. Um, of course, that will be it. Maybe, maybe, I don't know why white. Yeah, maybe both, yeah, well, I mean, maybe both Valverde and, and Nibali had the same discussion and the teams didn't talk to each other or the UCI didn't notify each team that they're actually that would making be very out of character for the game. UCI then. What a scandalous allegation um, of incompetence about the UCI, Ian. Um, also today, Jumbo Visma announced that uh, Wilco Kelderman and Dylan Van Bala, both of whom are riding the Vuelta España for different teams, were would be joining them next year. And EF Education First Easy Post announced the signing of Richard Carapaz. Of course, he's Ineos's leader here. How did you guys interpret those PR moves? I was quite taken aback. It it's it looked to me like a bit of a shot across the bows to the teams that those riders are leaving. Yeah, I mean, I guess I found it a little bit strange to announce those on the start of, you know, a Grand Tour, especially for someone like Van Barl, who who won Roubaix this spring and is obviously in the Netherlands at the Vuelta, you know, racing against his his future team, who, you know, most likely those two teams, Enios and, and Jumbo, are going to be going head-to-head. Um, you know, Carapaz, you know, I guess I've heard that rumor now for a while, and I guess at some point, you know, after the August 1st deadline, you have to, you know, make it known that you're going to be changing teams. Um but yeah, I mean, a little I guess bit surprising. All his teammates knew. Yeah, I guess all the teammates knew. But um, still, to do it on the eve—I mean, they could have done it on it any day—and to do it on the well on the day when he's starting a grand tour, which he's leading, um, I thought that was a, a bit of a thumbed nose at Ineos, a bit mischievous to say the least. Oh, I was just because I also maybe a nod to the Vuelta and kind of it, it's the Vuelta's status now as as a race where you know. Typically, you know, and, and I guess there's the whole relegation thing as well. And typically, you know, teams would not be, you know, maybe they would send a, you know, I guess maybe 10, 15 years ago, a team of younger riders and riders with less, less experience. But now, you know, the wealth is as hotly contested as, as any Grand Tour, um, you know, so they're still sending riders, top riders from, from any team that may be leaving, but it's still valuable to bring those riders to a big race. Also today, um, more news regarding Ineos. Adam Bigham, who is on the staff at Ineos, um, not as a rider, but as a sort of aerodynamic specialist and um, time trial guru, he broke the world hour record in Switzerland and set a new mark of 55.548 kilometers for the hour, beating Victor Campanut's record. 
55.089 kilometers an hour. And another Ineos rider, Filippo Ganna, is due to, well, he'll be taking on Bigham's record now. He's due to take it on in the next few weeks. We don't know exactly when, but it will be at some point in the autumn. Chaps, we heard what we heard you, Ian, on the opening day team time trial at the Vuelta España. Let's hear from, well, the the man of the day, Robert Haysink, um, who crossed the line first for Jumbo Visma and consequently will be wearing the red jersey of Vuelta leader tomorrow on home, well, Dutch roads. Let's hear what Haysink said after the finish. Still can't really believe it. Uh, really, really grateful to the boys. I mean, uh, oh, they were so, so crazy strong, and uh, oh, yeah, I'm really grateful that uh, to be to be in the red jersey. I think that's uh, yeah, definitely one of the highlights of my career. Were you always aware that uh, you were going to win? <laughs> well, we heard some intermediate times, and they were fast. But uh, obviously, I uh, have to make it to the end. And um, yeah, then uh, everything can happen. Obviously, during a team time trial. But um, uh, I knew this team uh, had uh, had the possibility to win for sure because there's so many so so strong guys uh, in this group and uh, yeah looking, looking really good 56.6 kilometer an hour was that the plan oh i uh, the plan was to uh, to stick stick with those uh, uh with with Primoz obviously and with the strongest guys and uh, then whatever average is okay and is it uh, a good time gap uh, I, I, I haven't heard it i was so 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 finished after the, after the line. Maybe. Was it the plan that you would cross the line first? When was that decided? Well, yeah, uh, obviously, uh, usually my job is to, to help the team, obviously, and to, to help Primoz. And uh, I think this is a really, really nice way for them to say, say thank you for all those uh, last few years of helping. So, uh, yeah, it was a good plan. And it would be a nice way tomorrow to ride on Dutch roads with the leaders there. That would be uh, one, uh, like a dream come true. The Cycling Podcast at the 2022 Vuelta España, powered by Super Sapiens. Energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Still guessing on fueling? Not sure what or when to eat and drink on rides that matter? Never again. Optimize your fueling strategy with real-time glucose data, actionable insights and personalized analytics. We're here to help you achieve your performance goals. Go to supersapiens.com for more on how to track your energy levels and fuel for success. Thank you very much to Super Sapiens, our title sponsors, of course. Go to supersapiens.com to find out more about the system of continuous glucose monitoring, which can help you fuel more effectively for your event. It's a tool that gives you an insight into how your body responds to certain types of foods, the order that you eat them in, the times of day that you eat them, and over time you can tweak your fueling to improve performance. And we've been talking a bit about the new Super Sapiens podcast, which you can find in all good podcast players. It's hosted by Zylan Ranek and Dr. David Lippmann who is the head of applied science at Super Sapiens and who is also a marathon runner. And in this clip, he's talking about carbo loading for endurance athletes. The intake required when you're truly carbohydrate loading is significant. A lot of people say, oh yeah, I love carbohydrate loading. Generally, I think those people are probably not eating enough carbohydrates if you like it. It's almost unpleasant when you're talking about the volumes you need to eat. Uh, you know, things like a kilogram of pasta, the day prior and, and look i'm heavy for an endurance athlete but still that's a lot and so if you're going to add a bunch of 
you know, starchy vegetables to that or fibrous foods, it gets very unpleasant uh, in terms of just the amount you need to eat. That's not considering then the potential for GI upset on race day. Well, chaps, we heard before our short commercial interlude there from Robert Haysink, who, as I said, will wear the red jersey tomorrow. And we've seen this before, this kind of sentimental nod towards a stalwart in a team. I remember Svein Tuft getting the pink jersey in the Giro d'Italia in 2014 at the end of a team time trial. I remember Marco Pinotti in 2009 at the Giro as well in the team time time trial in Venice. Um, were you expecting this that, or was it a surprise to you when you saw that Haysink was the anointed rider at Jumbo Visma? I mean, I expected it to be a, a Dutch rider. Um, you know, and I guess for, for Primus, it's like a perfect opportunity, you know, to not have to deal with the pressure in the media of, of having the red Jersey. And, you know, Haysink is a rider that's brought a lot to that team and he's done a lot for, you know, every team he's been a part of over his entire career. So I wasn't necessarily surprised um, you know, I'm, I, I'm sure Rohan Dennis did a lot of work and he kind of, you know, sat up near the end and you know, I guess he was the other rider I would have thought that would have maybe taken. The, yeah, sure. The I mean, guessing, uh, or it, it, it had to be, uh, guessing or Dennison because they are uh, like the riders from, uh, from the team. They, they started there. They are both, uh, they've both been there many, many years, but of course, Dennison is going to leave next year. So, uh, it had to be guessing because the other Dutchman, Omen, He's younger. He's he comes from another team. He's, it's only his second year there. So um, if it wasn't uh, Roglic, it had to be guessing. Yeah. I guess the other thing I was thinking was maybe maybe uh, Sepp Kuss, who was just sitting on the back, was going to sprint them all at the end and, and take the red jersey. But <laughs> we didn't see that happen. Yeah, I think it was. I think Sepp would have loved to be able to sprint and and you know, overtake Roglic, Turnison and all those guys. But I think Sepp might have been suffering slightly at that point, wouldn't you say? Yeah, but also for the fans. I mean, uh, I've heard uh, Jetze Boll, the, uh, the Dutch guy in, in Burgos Beace, saying that, uh, that he couldn't hear his uh, team radio because of the noise of the people. People was going just crazy on, on, on the street. So just imagine having a, a Dutch leader in... A guy like Guessing, uh, he's been there for ages, and I think uh, it's 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 a good thing for 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 cycling and for the Vuelta for the next two stages. In, Ian, in just generally, I mean, it's a big statement from Jumbo Visma. But what are the big takeaways from this stage, from your point of view? Obviously, some big winners, one big loser that I could see in the EF um, Education Easy Post, um, as far as teams with potential GC contenders. Go, but what were your big takeaways yeah i mean the the teams that have been dominant in this event and the teams that you know put the time and energy into it you know continue to stand up on on top of the podium um you know one thing that i think when we think back to you know team time trials of old you know there were these huge time gaps and we saw some reasonable time gaps today um, but nothing that's really you know insurmountable even for someone like remco you know he's only 14 seconds back on on roglich um but you know the I think it really just shows the depth of the current Peloton. The fact that, you know, I mean, even was it uh, Kern Pharma put together a, a phenomenal ride, you know, a team that's, you know, in, invited team to the race and, you know, maybe something that most cycling fans or a team that most cycling fans wouldn't have heard of, you know, they put together a really good performance today. Um, you know, I think the course definitely, definitely did dry out later in the day. And, you know, I think Simon Yates mentioned that, that, you know, a couple of the turns early on were dry as you entered the turn and then wet as you exited the turn. And, you know, 
there's nothing worse than, you know, for one, the fear of doing a team time trial on opening day, just with the, the nerves, but equally, you know, looking outside in the morning and seeing rain, that's like the absolute worst thing you could want as a, as a rider getting ready for. There was also apparently the threat of rain during the team time trial. And this made me curious about one thing I was going to ask you about equipment. There were still a lot of riders with visors on their time trial helmets. Now, in a team time trial, if you've got a visor and you've got rain falling on it and you're making visibility difficult, is that not dangerous? Is that not risky? It definitely is. And, you know, I think the technology and visors has come out, come along a long way. You know, back in the day when I first started, you know, the, the quality of a visor was far you know, far worse than anything you would have with a normal pair of sunglasses. But then again, you know, keeping the rain out of your face, but then is it going to fog up? You know, there's a lot of things to consider. You know, even a lot of those visors are are magnetic or they're a clip. And there's been plenty of team time trials where someone just popped the visor off and, and thrown it to the side of the road. Um, but, you know, they have the quality of the, you know, I guess optics of those visors has improved incredibly, but it, it's definitely a risk you're taking. But you also have to think, you know, you're sitting right in front of the wheel ahead of you. And so if it is wet, you know, there's going to be shooting road spray straight into your eyes, um, you know, and, and, you know, the, the margin of error in a team time trial is so small, you know, you're right on the wheels and you have people all around you and time trial bikes just tend to not handle as, as good as a road bike. So I think whatever you can do to still be able to keep your eyes open, um, it's going to be the, the safest way to get around the course as well. Just thinking back to the, the one that you won in 2016, I saw that you had two very different experiences for Team Sky. You went in 2015, there was a crazy, I mean, we were talking about this yesterday and it was like a crazy golf course, the team time trial down in Marbella. And I don't know whether it was the lack of a sort of GC goal in that. Oh, no, actually, you had Chris Froome, didn't you, in that, in the 2015 World Cup? But you finished 20th. Yes. Um, So what they did the day before the race, or maybe it was even the morning of, is they told all the teams that the GC wasn't going to be taken on the Uh, the finish line of of the team time trial. Um, You know, so we kind of had, you know, obviously having Froome on the team, you know, he reached out to some other teams and, you know, hey, we're just going to take it easy. And, you know, they they still awarded a red jersey. So I think BMC um, still actually had a really good ride and, and won the stage. But if you remember, we were going across a beach and they kind of laid out these mats across the sand. And, you know, as we you know, as we kind of rode the course and observed it throughout the day, you know, the more cars that went across it, it kind of made these imprints of tire tracks, you know, wearing into the sand. And, and it was absolutely insane. And that was my first grand tour. And I, you know, team time trials are dangerous enough. Um, so I'm, I'm happy that we took it easy. I still think, or I felt at the time, like we still went faster than we needed to, but, you know, finishing mm-hmm. 20th clearly showed that we took it a lot easier than the other teams out on course. And, and then the next year, I mean, you, you talked there about Kern Farmer, for example, you know, really good performance today and a lot of good performances and you know i've been speaking to a few teams in the last few days and you know a lot of them have done very specific training for this this stage today you know on airstrips and and they've had almost mini training camps bike exchange did a lot of sessions together um how much prep specific prep went into the one in 2016 which you guys actually won can you remember yeah there was a lot and i think it even started at uh, probably a team camp in, in January. Once you kind of know the courses, you know, we're out in Mallorca doing kind of team time trial training, but you don't really know the full team. So I think we actually went out a couple of days early to recon the course and to kind of train specifically for the team time trial and, you know, the order of the riders and, you know, the technique is so specific, but I think being at team sky was definitely beneficial having some riders like Pete Kennett was there who, who actually was the first across the line and took the red Jersey who has a, a team pursuit background, you know, to kind of having a few key riders, you know, kind of keep things organized and, and really communication is, is something incredibly important within teams. And, you know, I don't really know the, 
you know, the language spoke within most teams, but, you know, writers being able to communicate together on the fly is, is probably the most important thing to keep, you know, a team organized, especially if you have a writer, you know, who's sitting on or someone who misses a poll, or even at one point we saw uh, Luke Papp at, um, at Enios, you know, kind of tail off the back, you know, but team time trails are weird because there's oftentimes you can let a little gap go before a turn and kind of come back into the team because there is this kind of yo-yo effect. But equally, if you're on the front of the, the bunch or you know the front of the eight riders you will take a different line than you would if you were riding by yourself because you have to think about the last rider coming mm-hmm. through that turn and you know you almost wait a couple of seconds accelerating out of the turn and you wouldn't do that if you were doing a time trial by yourself i mean i i find them quite difficult to well interpret certainly watching them on tv because of the way the the footage kind of cuts from one team to the next you really you would need to you need the camera to be focused on one team for a long time to really get a sense of who was strong on a particular team and who was doing very long pulls that's something that generally kind of comes out in the wash when you speak to riders after um after the team time trial i didn't i don't know if you guys noticed anything that we can kind of extrapolate from today in terms of who's strong of the GC contenders and who's not based on today. The only thing I've uh, I've noticed was the uh, that that Remco out sprinted the, the the whole team. I mean, he he won just more or less one second. If it was his time, he, it it would be one second faster than than the, than the whole team. But for the rest, as you said, I mean, Ian, I don't know if it's very very important or if, if we or we if we have to to write that down that Movistar ha- was losing so many men. Uh, in the in the, in the beginning of the of the stage because they did a pretty good time at the end but maybe if they had had uh, I don't know six seven riders for the last kilometers they could go a little bit faster I don't know which which is the best thing to do in that situation yeah I mean keeping the team together as as long as possible is definitely a benefit and you know I guess Movistar is a perfect example you know it's a very Spanish team and I'm sure the language spoken amongst riders you know Valverde doesn't speak English or I, he never spoke English with me um and I think you know one of the riders and blanking on his name the the Danish writer um you know he was he was one of the riders dropped and so was it a lack of communication was it planned you know because things are happening so quick and so on the fly you know and you know, one thing we worked at a lot at Enios was, I guess, Team Sky at the time was like, which words you use, because sometimes go and no can sound very similar at <laughs> 60k an hour with a time trial helmet on. So, you know, choosing words that are very clear and, and different from each other. So you're not getting confused with people of, of you know, different nationalities and languages. Can you remember what the words were? Were there any expletives that were in the sort of common, <laughs> um, the, the common Team no, Time Trial parlance? Not that I can remember. I'm sure people were <laughs> mumbling under their breath all the time. And you know, team time trials they tend to also be very heated at the end. You know, especially if you don't, if you yeah. if you win a race or you have a good ride, everyone's happy. But regardless of the performance, you know, someone throughout the ride, you know, went too fast through a turn or didn't accelerate quick enough, or you know, someone made some mistake, and you know, someone is always angry with someone. But if you win, those kind of things are forgotten. The, the, there's always talk of egos, isn't there? Um, the the, the particularly before team time trials, there's always talk of the need to kind of bury one's ego and not to try to show that, you know, you're in great form or that you're stronger than the other guys or you're a better time trialist. And inevitably after the team time trial, there's always talk of egos as well, that someone, in spite of all of the advice, in spite of the fact that everyone knows you shouldn't do that, someone always does it. Yeah. And I think often the team that wins a team time trial is the team with the, the, you know, where everyone's kind of put their ego to the side, you know, clearly you have to have strong riders, but 
you have to think about, you know, if you're on the front, you can take the biggest, hardest pull, but if you're distancing the guy in fifth or sixth or eighth wheel, you know, it's not helping them out at all. And their pull is going to be, you know, shorter and easier because, because you've hurt them, you know, essentially when they should be recovering. Um, so really, if you can kind of get that cohesive team mindset together for a team time trial, that's oftentimes when you see the teams win. And I guess we saw that today with, with Yumbo, you know, throughout the year, they've put on displays of teamwork, unlike anyone else in, in, in this season, really in the last couple of years. And, you know, it wasn't really a surprise that they took the stage. And, and there are teams, guys, with this great heritage. I mean, we don't see many team time trials nowadays. We haven't seen one for a few years, but there are teams who going back over the years have always done well in team time trials and who pride themselves on being good in team time trials. Now, in that light, I think that um, EF Education's result today is particularly alarming for them to lose one minute and 19 seconds. I mean, Jonathan Vorter's in particular always, you know, he looks at, well, he's talked about it in the past, looking at individual time trial results and always you know, f- feeling a certain amount of pride when he sees the riders kind of grouped together at the front. And he, he always sees this as a marker of the great work being done by the specialists behind the scenes. And, you know, presumably a team time trial is a bit of a gauge of that as well. The work that's been done on equipment, the work that's been done on specific preparation for this day. And, um, you know, given that they've got guys here who do have general classification ambitions, Uran has said that he wants to do well on GC here, Chavez um, as well, and Carthy, of course, um, not a good day for them. No, no, but uh, once again, we'll discover that in a couple of days because, I mean, Chavez has never been such a, one of the best time trialers in uh, in the bunch, and nor, nor has been uh, Rigo. So maybe they they, they the teams uh, the, the team could do better, but they couldn't. And you're not going to drop one of your two or three leaders in in, in 23 kilometers. So I guess the answer on that we, we'll get it uh, on the next uh, couple of stages once once the Vuelta is in the Basque Country, where they can I, I think they can ride better on their on their own style. Yeah, I mean, I think with, you know, EF, they, they were a team, you know, typically that, you know, kind of outperformed, you know, bigger budget teams and teams with bigger riders in, in team time trials because they had this ability to kind of put put aside their egos and, and really race as a team. And so why they weren't able to do that here, you know, is it a matter of they didn't practice enough or were they, you know, it really just takes a few kind of missteps early on in the team time trial to, you know, kind of take the whole team out of rhythm, you know, did they hit a couple of wet turns and maybe a rider, you know, kind of bounced a wheel and that just threw them, threw them off for the whole, whole course of the race. Um, but yeah, I mean, the time that they lost today is significant. And I think we're seeing more so now than ever that, you know, a minute and, you know, 25 seconds and on stage one of a grand tour is, you know, oftentimes with the caliber of riders at the front, something that's going to be really hard to overcome. Well, guys, it is time for our second new daily feature of these Vuelta a España episodes. El ritmo de la vuelta. The rhythm of the vuelta. Now, last year, I think I threatened to do a kilometer zero on a beloved but little known, little acknowledged feature of La Vuelta. And as the official song, um, I think it's a tradition that's existed since 1978. Uh, Nicolas, before we go on, um, can you tell us, well, from a Spanish point of view, what does the official song of La Vuelta a España um, conjure up, or what do you know about it, the tradition? 
I know it started back in the in the late seventies, and uh, it became very very popular and very important once uh, the Spanish television started broadcasting the the Vuelta Live. Uh, that was in the uh, in the early eighties. Um, for my generation, the, the guys in, for, for my generation, the nineteen eighty two song. Uh, is always going to be um, going to be the synonym of uh, of cycling. It was it was also the first the first song ever recorded or, or made. Just thinking, of, I mean, it it was the song made for La Vuelta to be the 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 official song of that year in the in La Vuelta. So uh, I think for my generation and in other generations, younger generations, if when you play that song. It's so it, your mind comes uh, comes automatically switches to uh, to cycling in La Vuelta. Well, every year we're going to cover a different edition of La Vuelta and a different official song. But you did mention 1982. Me estoy volviendo loco. So let's hear a bit now. So that was the official song of 1982, uh, Vuelta España. It was the work of a group called Azul y Negro, Blue and um, Black. Uh, they were the only band to put their name and music to three official Vuelta songs. They were also chosen in 1983 and 1993. They were formed by two friends from Cartagena down in Murcia. And the band took its name from the colours of which Italian football team? Nico, you know this. Blue and blue and black. Ah, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's not Juventus. It's Inter, 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 Inter. Inter Milan. And this reminds me, I missed an opportunity earlier, or maybe we'll talk about it later, but Utrecht, of course, is famous um, as the birthplace of Marco van Basten, um, who played for the other Milanese football team, who played in red and, red and black, um, uh, AC Milan. Anyway, Azul y Negro um, still considered, would you say, sort of pioneers of electronic music in Spain? Kind of Spanish craft work? Yeah, sure, sure, and, and and pioneers. Not only on that, I mean, they were the first the first group ever to be to record to release an album on CD in Spain. That's oh, wow. the first Spanish group, at least. So, so uh, they were quite quite famous at the time, and uh, and and that particular song in 1982 was a big hit uh, after uh, after it was aired in in La Vuelta because on the time that La Vuelta was uh, was in in April May. So uh, there was a big chance to to become the, uh, the, the also the summer song in Spain and, and be played in the discos and stuff like that. So uh, uh, yeah, yeah, it was a big hit back then. I can't remember. I was too young back then. So one of the founders or one of the, um, the it was a, a, a two man ensemble, wasn't it? Um, Carlos Garcia Vaso said in an interview years later, the success of the song was a big surprise. We made the song specifically for. La Vuelta, the rhythm of the song mimicked the cadence of a cyclist. And the two things just came together in a way that surprised everyone. It was a total home run. Um, it became a hit in Europe, in Japan, USA and Australia. Uh, La Vuelta itself that year, 1982, was not much of a hit in the sense that it ended in a, in scandal, in disgrace. Um, some still refer to it as the most disgraceful edition of the race's history. Why? Because the rider crowned the winner in Madrid on May the 9th, Ángel Arroyo, was stripped of his victory 48 hours later when it, it emerged that he had tested positive for well, Ritalin, um, which is a stimulant, 
pretty well known these days. And that was after the stage to Navacerada, where we'll also go in the final week this year. Um, Arroyo's penalty at the time was a thousand Swiss francs, relegation to last place on the stage in question, an additional 10 minute penalty on GC, and one month ban. One month is all he got it. How is all he got as um, a suspension? How times have changed. Um, he maintained his innocence, said, I'm the real winner of La Vuelta. Um, the official champion, the guy that inherited the title, Marino Lejarreta, admitted, I don't know to what extent you can say I won La Vuelta. Races should be won on the road. Um, also notable in that edition, Nico, maybe you remember this, stage six was the first ever stage to be broadcast live from start to finish on Spanish TV. Did you do you remember that? Do you know that? Was that Lagos, Lagos y Covadonga, maybe? I think I have a vague memory that... Covadonga was the first entirely live uh, stage on television. I don't know. I, I, anyway, Chaz, that was 1982. Uh, Me estoy volviendo loco. I'm going crazy. Um, huge hit. And well, every day we'll be hearing uh, about another Vuelta song, another edition of La Vuelta. Now, guys, let's focus on this year. We've got 3,285 kilometers, 48,664 meters of climbing. Um, 53 kilometers of time trials, which 23 were in today's team time trial. I, Ian, I just want to ask you about the, those meters of climbing, 48,664. Now, it sounds like a huge number. However, it is one of the least, if you just base this on vertical meters, it is one of the least hilly, climby vueltas in recent years. In fact, um, since 2018, well, there's only been one other one that was less than 50,000 meters of climbing. So I said 48,600. Um, to compare with the sort of high point of recent years, um, the tour in 2020 was 58,919 meters of climbing. So 10,000 meters more climbing than this Vuelta España. Uh, just looking at the route, do you think that it looks like quite a light, I don't want to say decaffeinated Vuelta, but what, what do you think? Well, I mean, I think over the last, you know, several years, the Vuelta has become famous for finding these somewhat ridiculous climbs that, you know, have never been raced up or, you know, a, a path or a goat track up to some climb, which has made the race really exciting. Um, and, you know, we actually spoke, Francois and I, about this at, at the tour, about kind of the middle mountain tour. And like, is that a way to actually make the GC battle a little bit closer and a little bit tighter and you know the aso owning both the tour de france and the vuelta maybe that's what they're kind of experimenting with here is could we still make a course that's challenging but could we open up the front of the race to more athletes and i think as we look at you know the tour de france this year and there's really only two riders at the tour this year that were capable of winning and with the vuelta you know being a race that maybe is some riders first opportunity at going for a, a gc you know, are they allowing by reducing the climbing meters a few more riders to actually come into play and, and try and you know go for the overall? And I think there's only one horse category climb. Yeah, um, and in the I'm, entire race. I mean, I mean, the, I mean, one the sort of one litmus test for of, of sort of difficulty in climbing is this kind of four thousand meter threshold or barrier, and you know anything above that is a real kind of bona fide mountain stage, and there aren't any on this Vuelta España. In the Giro, you know, often you get a couple of stages that are over 5,000 metres of climbing a day, but do you think as a rider you would, is that a key metric? Would you notice that there are 5,000 metres of climbing less than there were, for example, in the Giro or, or on the Tour, or does it 
dependent entirely on how the, how the race is raced. I mean, I think for someone like myself, being someone who kind of enjoyed climbing, I wouldn't notice it as much as maybe, you know, some of the sprinters or, you know, kind of bigger rulers may notice it more. Um, but that said, it also puts maybe more pressure on the climbers because there's less opportunity for them to kind of distance themselves from some of the riders, you know, who maybe can't, you know, a 4,000 meter or 5,000 meter day of climbing for someone like, you know, well, Van Art might be a little bit more than someone like, you know, I, someone who's maybe just not as much of a, you know, more of a pure climber. Um, I think it does, I think it will be exciting. And I think it's maybe the way of, of the future. You know, we are seeing more riders, you know, even someone like Remco, you know, we haven't really seen him perform back-to-back, you know, days in the high mountains. So could this be potentially a, you know, really good grand tour for him to actually see what he's, what he's capable of? I mean, I mean, I've heard people say that it's designed for Remco. I, I mean, that's obviously not the case. Um, it's not literally designed for him. But do you guys, I mean, are you believers in Remco as a GC threat and particularly as a potential winner of this world, bearing in mind that route? I don't know. He's a big, uh, a big, very big question mark, Remco, isn't he? Uh, I mean, he's he's only a uh, ground to till now the Giro d'Italia back uh, two years ago, one year ago. Uh, wasn't so good. It was kind of, uh, you know, it was. He came there after his uh, his injury, uh, but everyone was expecting a little bit more from him. And now he doesn't have any excuse, uh, so he has to. He has to be there. He has to. Uh, if if he ever wants to win the Tour de France or a big race, he definitely has to be there in this Vuelta España. He's a good parkour for him. So um, I don't know if he, if he's capable to win it or not. He's very, still very very young, but he has to deal with that pressure, of course. I mean, the, the team element is another sort of question mark that I have. Just we talked about the heritage of teams in team time trials, but. Quickstep is a team that has never really focused on Grand Tours. And, you know, you look at Jumbo Visma winning the Tour de France this year, and I just felt that every year they were building and getting closer and closer and closer, adding pieces. Now, Quickstep, um, in, well, they've existed since 2003. Um, they've had two podiums in Grand Tours since 2003. They've, had, they've done 57 Grand Tours and they've had four top fives in that whole time. Now, they've got a lot of good climbers here, but I, to me, I can well imagine that they might, as well as what doubts people have about Remco's temperament and you know, his ability to sort of stay calm over three weeks, to me, they may lack some sort of savoir-faire, some sort of know-how. I mean, just, does that count, Ian? Yeah, I mean, it does. I mean, and we really also don't know what kind of condition Philippe is. You know, he hasn't really shown himself to come back to the same level as, you know, he was kind of before, you know, I guess earlier in this year and in previous years. But does it, does this course, I guess, kind of going back to that, does this allow Quick Step to maybe race GC in the style of racing that they enjoy, where, you know, maybe there's more attacking, maybe there's more dynamic racing going on throughout the stage that Remco doesn't have to be this, you know, controlled, calculated, you know, kind of methodical you know, typical GC rider, and he can actually kind of race his bike and he can, you know, attack on a climb similar like San Sebastian and, and go on a long, you know, escapade, you know, 20, 30 K before the finish. Um, and I think, you know, we, we've saw that this year with, you know, at, at the tour that, you know, racing has changed extremely over the last couple of years, you know, the race has become much more dynamic, much more unpredictable. Um, and, and that could potentially, you know, Remco's not the, the punchiest of riders, but once he does get away, he does have the ability to, you know, kind of hold off a chasing group. And maybe rely less on a team than than someone like you know Froome of old or you know even Vingegaard in in the tour this year. 
I mean, I think he definitely scares the other riders. I think he intimidates them, particularly what he did in San Sebastian. And that, you know, they probably, a lot of the other guys probably have the same doubt that we have. Can he do this over three weeks? Can he string 21 stages together? But certainly his best performances, whether they be on steep climbs or long climbs, um, I think he's shown something on every terrain that you need to be able to master to win a grand tour so um i'd be interesting I'm, I'm really interested as well nicholas to see when i get to the vuelta on monday you know the press pack at the the vuelta as you know it can be either very very small and it can be predominantly spaniards or tends to be when there's a big belgian interest in in the years always when la vuelta was seen as the key warm-up race for the world the belgians would kind of descend on mass and I expect there to be a huge presence there. I saw it at the Giro last year for Remco. And it's just going to be interesting to to observe the interaction of Remco with the the, the Belgian media. Because that's been an, a sort of up and down relationship already to this point in his career. Yeah, sure. I mean, Belgians are waiting for a, for a ground tour winner, a big ground tour winner since Medics. So uh, it's it's been quite a long waiting uh time for, for them and, and, and Remco I mean uh, short answer is he able to do the, the things like uh, like, in, like like in San Sebastian for three weeks short answer is no no way long answer how many, how much time do we have to speak about how Belgians perform in three weeks and uh, about uh, Walt van Aert uh, in the Tour de France I mean cycling is changing so much and um, I, I can't predict anything from, from Remco now because Ayuso is also there and Carlos Rodriguez is also there. So many young people, young guys are there and you don't know what to expect from them. So um, I really, I have no clue what can happen in this Vuelta España. And, and, and surely not with this with this kind of, 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 of route that they've designed. I have no clue. Well, that's the, the beauty of it, isn't it? Well, no, it's a shame because I'm about to ask for your pr- prediction. But before you do that, um, it is a bit of a tradition on the podcast for me to give my top. This is a slightly curious um, little custom that I have. Given my top 18 contenders listed in order of likelihood to win a particular race, in this case, La Vuelta. And they are as follows. Most likely first, Primoz Roglic, Richard Carapaz, Jai Hindley, Simon Yates, Enric Mas, Wilco Kelderman, Superman Lopez, Remco Evenepoel, uh, Mikel Landa, Ben O'Connor, Sergio Higuita, Theo Gegenhardt, Hugh Carthy, I might want to change that after today, Pavel Sivakov, Timon Aronsman, Carlos Rodriguez, Juan Ayuso, Esteban Chavez, and Rigoberto Uran. What do you make of that list? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a, a pretty fair guess. I mean, it's, I mean, especially after seeing the performance today of, you know, Yumbo and Roglic, it's hard to discredit him. I also think, you know, unlike a prologue, we really don't get to see what type of form he is in. You know, as a team, clearly they're strong and clearly he was able to hang with them. But, you know, as you said, you don't really get to follow the, the team around the entire course and see was he taking big, long poles or was he kind of, you know, sitting in for part of it. Um, you know, he has won three in a row, which is pretty darn impressive. And, you know, I think he, he's back here to try to, to win a fourth. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it's, we really don't know the, the injuries and the full, you know, scale of his training between the, the tour and now, um, you know, I, I, you mentioned Pavel Sivakov and I think he would be an exciting rider to watch. You know, he's been on good form recently, you know, he's tended to be a rider who's kind of had bad luck and crashes that have really taken him, you know, not just out of races, but where he's kind of just limped, limped to the finish line. 
Um, and it'd be great to see him, you know, he's not a, necessarily a young rider anymore compared to some of the other names you'd mentioned. So um, yeah, I'm going to keep my eye on, on Sivakov as well. Chaps, I had Simon Yates down as fourth on my list. Now, I, I get the impression in the build-up to this Vuelta España that people have started to get not exasperated with Yates, but he's sort of fallen off a lot of people's agenda or, or their list of, of kind of top-tier favourites for Grand Tours because he has had a, a lot of bad luck. He's had a series of Grand Tours where things have gone wrong. And, you know, we saw that at the Giro d'Italia. He came in as one of the favourites and, and had to pull out with a knee problem. And just, well, we're going to hear from Simon Yates, but just before we do... Um, how do you rate his chances? Again, bearing in mind what we saw today, I thought they would win today, to be honest, with the team that they had. And um, they performed pretty well, but um, were no match for Jumbo Visma. Yates has already won uh, the Vuelta, so he's capable of winning it. But as you said, he's he's had bad luck. I don't know if it, if, if so many times it can be called bad, bad luck or, 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 or if there's something more behind it. Um, I... I we could compare it maybe with with a lot of distance. Uh, don't get me wrong with that, but with Mikel Landa, he's always there. He's always in in some kind of discussion if he's go- going to be one of the favorites for uh, for the Giro for the Vuelta for the Tour. But there's always there's something happening to them. So uh, for me, for me, it's 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 quite difficult to see him uh, fighting for the victory at the end of this Vuelta. Honestly. Well, chaps, we're going to hear a lot of interviews over the next three weeks. But every day, I'm going to, particularly when I'm in Spain, I'm going to endeavour to provide something a little bit more formal, a little bit formal but relaxed. It'll be like the sort of Ralph Lauren jumper slung over the shoulders and the white chinos um, of interviews. I'm not sure what uh, I'm not sure Simon Yates owns any chinos. He's not, it doesn't strike me as that kind of guy. Um, but this feature will come into its own when I get to Spain next week. Um, but in the meantime, let's have the first Encuentro del Día. El Encuentro del Día. The meeting of the day. I mean, uh, I had to have a long time off um, just with the injury. Uh, maybe almost a, almost a month fully off the bike. So it wasn't ideal preparation anyway. Um, when the tour started it was probably just getting getting enough to start riding again but um i would not have been in any state to to to, to do a good race to go for stages or anything so um at that point it was just a discussion to see how well i came back up um after being able to ride again train properly again and um and we just kind of went from there really um, I've won this race before, so uh, I don't see why we can't try and aim to do that again. Um, of course, it's always difficult, but uh, we'll uh, give it our best shot. I mean, the last couple of years, or in certain races, I've always had um, a couple of problems in the early part of the race anyway, for a couple of crashes or injuries and stuff, so I've actually not been able to go harder than anyway, so nothing's really changed at that point of view. Um, but yeah, I mean, now we're starting up here in the in the Highlands. I think uh, I just want to get through this first part safely, um, without any crashes, without any injuries, and then with that, I just really, really hope I can show myself as best as possible. Um, and, and yeah, that's it. Really, no no real strategy so far. I think we need to get out of uh, out of Holland here um, safely, and then I mean, from there onwards, it's it's a. Uh, <laughs> 
typical for Walter, it's just very hard every day. There's something going on every day that you need to be aware of and, and be switched on for. So there's never any time to, to, to rest. Um, but I, I like that style of racing. I like um, getting stuck in. Um, those days at some other Grand Tours where you you know you really do nothing all day. That's uh, sometimes mentally challenging. You know you check out of the race a little bit and you you don't feel like you're inside the race anymore. Um, but here at the Vuelta is the opposite. You know you, you you we really race every day normally and and I really enjoy that. So, um, but I mean that also brings sort of aggressive racing as well um, because you might see an opportunity one day or or you need to defend yourself one day. Um, and yeah, that's just uh, that's just a love welter for you. Science in Sport is supporting the cycling podcast at the 2022 Vuelta España. Science in Sport, fueled by science. Thank you very much to Science in Sport, our longest-term supporters, of course. Science in Sport offers all of our listeners 25% off at scienceinsport.com with the discount code SISCP25. The discount code is still valid. It's still working. If you are having any difficulty with it, it's almost certainly because you're trying to apply it to a shopping basket which already has some discounted items in it. The SISCP25 code doesn't work in conjunction with any other discount codes that Science in Sport might be running. But you can get 25% off everything at scienceinsport.com and they of course have everything you need to fuel your ride before, during and afterwards. Whether it's energy gels or the beta fuel or the delicious tiramisu cake bars. I'll be stocking up on all of that before the second half of our trip around Scotland, the Tour de Cosse, which we will be doing in a few weeks time. Listen out for that in Explore a bit later on this year. But that discount code again, SISCP25. Well, we heard earlier about this being Alejandro Valverde's last uh, Vuelta a España. We also talked about Movistar having done a pretty decent Team time trial today. Um, when did, where did they finish? Eventually, they were well. They were well down in the end. They were tenth, but they only lost forty three seconds, and they don't have you know, they don't have all of their big rulers in the team. So it was pretty creditable, I thought. Um, but this is a really, I think you probably both agree, this is a really important Vuelta España for them. They've been threatened. They're currently sort of suspended precariously above this relegation zone. As we know, um, there is going to be a, a cut made at the end of this season. And a couple of teams that are currently in the World Tour and will no longer be um, at the end of or after the end of this season. The Movistar have been threatened with the relegation. It's been a bit of a big talking point. I think you'll agree, Nicolas, in um, Spanish cycling this year. The woes of Movistar, which you know, depending on who you talk to, have been going on for a few years now. I'm, I was struck by it. There was a very interesting tweet by a good friend of the podcast, former one of our former Welter reporters or collaborators, in fact, um, Fran Reyes, the other day, and he he sort of um, dissected and and enumerated the various causes of Movistar's problems as he sees. And this was sort of prefaced with a video. There was a race recently, I don't know whether it was San Sebastian, but there was a group of fans that sort of crowded around the Movistar team bus and they sort of shouted, they sang in kind of football, um, football supporters 
fashion style you're you're going down you know second division and um well fran as i said he he talks about what he sees as the causes of movistar's problems um you know he talks about the 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 end of their monopoly of spanish and latin american talent um they're only they're one of only six world tour teams without any kind of feeder team they've been one of the last teams to embrace pre-season training camps, altitude camps. Um, riders don't know which racing program they're doing until about a month before. The average age of their Tour and Vuelta teams over the last few years or since 2018 has been over 30. Um, they've only got six DSs, at least listed on the website. Um, some teams nowadays have over 10. Um, so Fran mentioned those points. A couple I'd also mention, there was the well-publicized fallout with cycling's premier super agent, um, Giuseppe Acquadro, um, the Italian a couple of years ago in 2019, that sort of led to them losing Carapaz, Quintana, and also not signing any of Aquadro's riders for a couple of years. There was a whole Superman Lopez debacle last year. And then the, the, the sort of emerging, the big emerging Spanish talents, Juan Ayuso and Carlos Rodriguez, in the meantime, they both signed up with other teams. Ayuso's got the longest contract in professional cycling. He's contracted to UAE until 2028. Um... And then I suppose they've got Enric Mas, who's had his own problems, had his problems with descending and, and also, I think, with just being able to to live with the pressure of being Movistar's leader at the Tour de France. So, Nico, Movistar's welter, um, how important is this race for them? It's it's so important for them and, and, and for Spanish cycling. I mean, it, shame on those uh, fans that were booing and, 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 and uh, celebrating that Movistar could be relegated to the second division. Let's uh, let's call it that way. Uh, I, th- I don't think they 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 have even thought what can happen to Spanish cycling if if Movistar gets relegated. Who's going to watch uh, the two- the world is going to? I mean, what would happen? Be watched. That- what would happen? Uh, for, for, first of all, where, where are all those young Spanish riders uh, go once they get to professional level in Ken Pharma or Euskaltel or uh, any other team? They, they're not going to find so many spaces. In, we, we are not going to have every year two, three, four Ayusos or Rodriguez uh, in Spain. So where, where, where are they going to be? Who's going to watch the... Uh, the the, uh, the the Tour de France, the Giro d'Italia, all those races. If there's if there's not a Spanish team with a Spanish guy like Valverde, or it's it can be a very 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 bad situation. It it could be the crisis of the of the era for Spanish cycling because we can't forget it's it's something that would happen for three years, and I don't know if Movistar, the uh, the firma, the, the enterprise, is going to renew his sponsorship contract with the team. If they are not in the World Tour and, and they're not going to be in the France. So. I mean, would you guys agree, though, that it is obviously partly the team's fault? I mean, this issue, this perception that they're always a little bit slow to cotton on. I mean, even what I said about Ayuso having signed this long contract, even this trend, we've seen so many riders in the last couple of years, it was two years used to be the standard contract in professional cycling. All of a sudden we're seeing three years, four years, five years. And what that means is that, well, Ayusa's taken off the market until 2028. Even, and, and you know, the, there have been riders who, Eusebio um, Unthwe, the manager of Movistar, has said, oh, you know, we didn't want to take him when he was 19 or 20. We preferred to wait. And in the meantime, that rider has signed a six or seven year contract. 
somewhere else or, or maybe not that long, but long-term contract somewhere else and they've missed the opportunity. But it does seem sometimes symptomatic of Movistar just being a little bit behind the curve when it comes to trends. I, I don't know if this is something that you would have said back in 2017 or 16 or 15, um, Ian, when you were racing alongside them. Yeah, I mean, it, it definitely is. You know, I had numerous friends and, you know, I guess teammates who went to the team or came from that team. And it was always, you know, they're such an established team, you know, and then, you know, through my years of racing the world tour, they're always consistent. They were always there. They always had, you know, riders up in the mix of, of grand tours of one day races, maybe not the, you know, flat spring classics. Um, but at the same time, you know, they've kind of gotten away with letting the game get ahead of them because they've had this talent in Valverde, you know, and he's really kept the team together for, you know, his entire career, which is, you know, I'm sure he doesn't help this age skew of, you know, 30 plus years old at mm-hmm. the you know, average age of a team. But because he's still performing, doing what he has done, the team hasn't necessarily evolved to think, okay, well, what do we need to do for the next generation of rider? And they have done a, you know, a reasonable job of trying to recruit some riders internationally. You know, there's a couple Americans, they've got some, you know, I guess an Austrian, a German, you know, a Danish rider, but is the culture and the core of the team still stuck in how Valverde was training in, you know, the mid and early two thousands, which is, you know, really kind of what I see as, you know, the, the downfall of the team. And I think, you know, someone like Ayuso, you know, some of these young riders, they see how that team works, but they also see how, you know, these newer teams are kind of, you know, putting more time into altitude camps and, you know, research and development. And they're probably, you know, the new generation of cyclists, they want that. They don't want to not have a team training camp. They don't want to, you know, go to altitude by themselves because the team doesn't want to go. They want to be part of a, a team structure that's, you know, has a whole network of people behind them. And so it, it really is unfortunate. You know, I think we're seeing that with Valverde leaving the team that all of a sudden, you know, they don't have the the infrastructure and the, you know, whether it's the sports science or the, you know, technicians to actually kind of push the team and advance them to the same level of, you know, Ineos or Yumbo or even now UAE. I mean, I mentioned Carlos Rodriguez um, and Nico. I mean, that's one that they, I mean, he's still only 21. And he's got a contract with Ineos until the end of 2023. There are already rumors that he might end up at Movistar. He's also a client of Acuadro. And now the bridge between Unthue and Acuadro has been rebuilt. So there is the possibility that that deal um, could happen. But, you know, he's another example of, of someone who should really be there already shouldn't he and they've you know they've they've been unlucky they've gambled on they gambled on some Colombians that haven't really worked out um Ainer Rubio was one who looked very promising a couple of years ago but it's been slow to emerge I mean partly because you know as, as Ian mentioned there these these very old experienced teams that they've taken into the Vuelta and the Tour and this is something we've seen in French teams as well they're very reluctant to to take a 21 year old or a 22 year old to a grand tour yeah we've seen that in Sp- in movistar we have seen that in, in french teams and we've seen that in, in italian teams i mean i think the uh the 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 old cycling uh countries have made the same mistake but I, the key word here you, you said it before Unthu is always speaking about waiting waiting for everything even in the, in the race when Nairo was was uh, a contender for for the uh, for the Tour de France I remember each day was we're waiting there's still time <laughs> there's still time and, and then you were in in the stage 20 and there was no time left uh, after the first Tour de France uh, with Nairo they decided not to take Nairo to maybe one of the best tours ever for him a very hilly, uh, hilly tour. He, then he went to the Giro d'Italia. He, sk- he skipped the uh, the Tour de France from his calendar 
Why? Because they wanted to wait until he was a little bit more, uh, I don't know, older or experienced, whatever. He came, he, he did one of his best to the France in his debut. Keep the guy going to, to the France. I mean, that's that's a key word in, in Movistar. Wait, wait, wait. And there's no time left now. They, they have to perform in this world now. They, maybe there's no more Movistar after this world if they, if they get relegated. I don't know. I have... Uh, but three years in the second division, I don't know how how could Carlos Rodriguez then decide to go back to Movistar or, or go to Movistar, leave Ineos for Movistar. I, I don't see that happening if Movistar is, is in the second division. I don't see Ayuso, of course, breaking his contract to go to UAE, uh, to Movistar. Um, I don't see any international uh, star like Carapaz has, has decided to go to, to EF instead of going back to Movistar, which was also rumored uh, a couple of months ago. Who's gonna, who, who, who does want to go to Movistar if they get relegated? They can't wait anymore. They, they need Enrique Mas to perform in this Vuelta. I hope he, 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 he does so, not just for Movistar, also for, for the guy. I feel, I feel very, very sorry for what happened to him in, in the Tour de France. But they need a change of mentality, and I think I'm, I'm very sorry about it. But after after 40 years, I think Eusebio has done his job. He's uh, he needs to give space to to, to, to his son and to other young well, he's guys. He's very, he's very focused on the women's team, which is doing very well, and and also he's yeah, and also he's investing a lot. Yeah, that's it. That's it. There, there are guys there that, that 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 have shown that they can do the trick. So, uh, especially his son with the with the women uh, with the women team. So, once you do it with the women team, I guess you can do it with the, with with the men team as well. So, there, there are guys there who definitely know how to do the trick. I, I remember Bentoso, Fran Bentoso, some years ago, many years ago, his second year in BMC after after leaving uh, after leaving Movistar. I asked him. What's the main difference you found in in BMC uh, since you left Movistar? It was a training camp in February. He said, "Now I know what I'm going to race for the next three three months instead from the next three hours." Because Nico, <laughs> you know, you know, Eusebio, uh, today you're going to the Vuelta a España, and tomorrow maybe the wind has changed. He, you receive a call, and you're not going to the Vuelta a España. So. The, uh, the mentality, that's the mentality there. And it doesn't cope anymore with uh, with cycling nowadays. And briefly, you mentioned Ayuso and Rodriguez. How do you think they will do in La Vuelta? Big question mark, just as uh, Remco. I think, um, I think Ayuso is going to do well. He's a very, very, very intelligent rider, a very intelligent person. Uh, he's shown that he can cope with pressure. He likes the pressure, and uh, the only the only thing that has to be answered now is if he's capable physically to uh, to keep the uh, to keep three weeks with the best guys. But I think Rodriguez has more experience in that. Um, but the big question mark there is is, is Ayuso, because the, that's the only thing. If he can cope with three weeks. Chaps, in a moment, we're going to talk about tomorrow's stage briefly. Um, before we do, I should mention that Stacey Snyder's collection of Vuelta España cappuccino cups, mugs and espresso sets go on sale tomorrow. That's Saturday at 10 a.m. US, US East Coast time, which is 3 p.m. UK time, 4 p.m. Spanish time. Proceeds from the sales of the cups will go to a charity chosen by Richard Moore's family. 
go to Stacey Snyder's Etsy store to buy the cups. Uh, they usually sell out very fast. And there is a link in the show notes. La etapa de mañana, la cena de ayer. Tomorrow's stage, yesterday's food. So our fourth and final, what's going to be regular feature of this um, Vuelta a España, um, something we're going to hear every day. I'll be telling you what I had for dinner last night. Um, which it will become, again, slightly more relevant when I get to Spain. I'm eating some proper Spanish food. But I did endeavour to seek out some Spanish food in London last night. There's a, uh, a quite a good Extremaduran restaurant um, very close to where I'm currently staying. And, um, well, Nico, I had some croquetas del día. Um, croquetas, we've talked about them at length on the podcast before. Um, espinacas and blue cheese. It's blue cheese queso azul. You say yeah, queso azul, yeah. Um, queso azul, yeah, yeah, and um, I also discovered today that Utrecht has its own version of croquetas called bitter ballon. Um, never tried them; don't sound very I'm famous. That inspired very, yeah, to try them, you have to do that. <laughs> and I also you have had, to try them. Definitely. I also had some arroz de tomates de penar, cebolla quemada, y romanesco. So it's kind of vegetarian. Before my vegetarian vegan regime goes out of the window when I get to Spain, I did take the sort of vegetarian option last night in, as I said, very good uh, Extremaduran restaurant called Jose Pizarro um, in South London. Ian, you have been tasked with presenting tomorrow's stage, telling us what we've got in store. What is on the menu? Yes, stage two of this year's Vuelta is 175.1k from, uh, I'm going to, I'm probably going to screw this up, but Hertogenbosch back to Utrecht where they started today. Did I say that correctly? Yeah, more or less. There's yeah, a I little think so. S dash yes, before. Uh, I have no yeah, idea if that yeah, means yeah. like. Does that uh, mean Nico, can probably, or... Nico can probably pronounce it properly. Okay. Yeah, well, I'll just leave that part to Nico. Um, <laughs> there is one category for climb, and I did check the weather. It doesn't look incredibly windy. Um, so it should be it should be a bunch gallop. Um, for the sprinters and, and hopefully an enjoyable day for guessing in the red jersey. Sprinters here, guys, we've got Sam Bennett and Brian Cocker, Ethan Hater, uh, Tyson of Intermarche, Einhorn of Israel, Ackerman of UAE, Merlier, uh, Groves, Bike Exchange. Who, if anyone, do you see as the dominant sprinter when there are opportunities? There won't be many. I think I think the best chance is for Mats Pedersen and um, oh, Mats Pedersen I didn't even mention, but yes, of course, Mats Pedersen can also sprint. <laughs> and and tomorrow, especially because it's in, in, his, in his backyard, uh, Danny Van Poppel may might be there. Uh, but once again, we'll see. Just the first sprint stage, isn't it? We, we have to see how how all of them uh, get to the Vuelta España and if they are in top form or not. Uh, my my crazy. Bet is going to be Juan Sebastián Molano. Maybe, maybe, uh, maybe he could do something. If if Pascal Ackerman decides not to sprint himself, uh, Juan, uh, Molano could be some one one of those crazy uh, bets that make you win a lot of money. <laughs> yeah, I think you would win a fair amount of money if Juan Sebastián Molano won tomorrow in Utrecht. But that's something to look forward to. Um, you mentioned Danny Van Poppel. 
will be will feel very much at home yesterday he was born in Utrecht we're also going through a place called Amersfoort again probably terrible pronunciation with 27 kilometers to go that is the hometown of Wilco Kelderman and Timon Aronsman apparently studied in Utrecht which I think I'm right in saying has the biggest university in the Netherlands um so chaps well, I think that concludes the evening's entertainment. I'm going to have my dinner. Um, I've got a nice glass of Menthia, Spanish wine waiting for me. I'm going to thank you guys. Uh, Nico, we're going to hear from you later in the week. Boz, you're back next week or in the second week of the race. And tomorrow I'll be joined by Larry Warbass, Lucky Larry, joining me from Traverse City. Have you ever been to Traverse City, Boz? No, no, never been up there. But uh, Should yeah. we go? Larry told me to come visit. <laughs> Uh, maybe during cherry season. I think they have a lot of good cherries up there. So we can hit, hit the timing right. Okay. Well, guys, um, I'm going to thank you very much. Muchísimas gracias. And, well, we'll see the listeners. We'll, I'll be uh, speaking to the listeners tomorrow. So until then, oh, hasta luego. Hasta. Bye-bye. The Cycling Podcast was created in 2013 by Richard Moore, Daniel Freeb, and Lionel Burney.